This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. The goal of this podcast since day one is to provide the best information on the Vancouver real estate market at no cost to you, the listeners. To that end, we'd like to thank the following sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by Marcon, a local family-owned and managed real estate development and construction company that's been around for nearly four decades. Marcon is not only committed to high-quality construction, but it also is making a positive impact in the communities in which it builds all across the Lower Mainland. We want to highlight two incredible Marcon projects. Elmwood, a 38-story tower located at Burquitlam's most important intersection, Como Lake Avenue and Clark Road. This landmark tower will feature 335 condominiums, over 37,000 square feet of office and retail space, and almost 20,000 square feet of amenity space. Elmwood has been incredibly popular with 80% sold currently, but they still have a great selection of junior one-bedroom all the way to three-bedroom homes remaining. Check out markon.ca slash Elmwood for more. And Matt, we are also excited about Sone House, Markon's newest community in West Coquitlam. With 165 homes ranging from junior one beds to three beds, Sone House offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic-inspired design. Register today at markon.ca slash Sonehouse. That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. Or you can learn more at markon.ca or follow them at Instagram at markonhomes. Markon, building for life. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your other host, Matt Scalina. And Matt, today we're going downtown with Scott Brown. Downtown Scott Brown, president and CEO of Fifth Avenue Real Estate Marketing. I'm so excited about this episode because we did, we just literally got off the phone with Scott and it was a 45-minute interview and it's just the whole thing is just super compelling. Well, listen, I mean, when do you get to talk to the president and CEO of a marketing company that's done $9 billion? $9 billion in sales. $9 billion in sales. That's I mean, unbelievable. It is. And, and this company has been around since 1980, so they're almost four decades in the Lower Mainland. Scott was one of the guys who predicted the explosion of the Fraser Valley. He was out there early. He was telling people to invest early. And now he's back talking to us. He's got advice for millennials, investors, where he would buy right now, okay, which is amazing. And uh, also, what does he think is going to happen with the market over the next uh, year or two? Yeah. And you know what? There's kind of three reasons why I'm really excited to talk to Scott. One, very bright guy, very experienced. Two, we don't focus on the Fraser Valley enough. I mean, we, we just don't. On this podcast. On the, on the Vancouver Real Estate Podcast, we don't. It's exciting to have somebody who knows that market intimately. And three, he just gave the other night a state of the market to the Urban Development Institute, right? Right. This is the talk that Bob so Rennie used to give, and Scott Brown has taken the mantle over, and uh, right. and he's the guy doing it, and he came and talked to us the day before, so it's very exciting. Perfect, and and actually, that's funny, because you think about at that time, when he's been, I mean, this is a guy that thinks deeply about the market at all times, but right now, he's probably, he's got to give this data the, yeah. the market, so all of his 
his thoughts on the market have just been formally kind of crystallized exactly. in his mind. Exactly. And uh, he shares it all here. We just got his dissertation defense. <laughs> you defended. Heard it here, defended. You heard it here first. Yeah, it's phenomenal. Stay tuned. This is one of my favorite interviews we've had on the program. Scott Brown, Fifth Avenue Marketing. Enjoy. Enjoy, guys. Okay, so we're here with Scott Brown, President and CEO of Fifth Avenue Real Estate Marketing. How are you doing, Scott? Real good. How are you doing today, guys? Yeah, great. Thanks for taking the time today, Scott. Well, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. So, Scott, maybe can you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and Fifth Avenue? Sure. Like a lot of people you probably talk to in our industry, I didn't, uh, as a little boy, I didn't dream of one day being in a residential real estate marketer (laughs) or licensed realtor even. I never wanted to be on a bus stop either, so uh, that part hasn't materialized. But I got involved in... uh, multifamily residential back in kind of two in 1991 or two when Surrey City Center was just going. But from that point on till probably 2009, I, I did that and helped developers globally. So I lived in Vancouver, but I was flying, you know, everywhere from Florida and the Caribbean to Dubai to Manila. So I had a real international experience. And a lot of that experience was working as well on on uh, more premium-oriented product and with branded residential with, with hotel brands like Four Seasons Hotels, Resorts, and things like that. So pretty intensive experience. About 2000, I guess it was uh, seven or about eight, I guess I decided I'd have spent too much time on a plane and I actually liked my kids and wanted to be around them more. So <laughs> I started working exclusively in the Vancouver market in 2009. Uh, started one company up and started putting out a research report at that time that was you know, still out there. It's been I've been doing it for I guess almost nine years, and it it speaks exclusively to the new home sales market and the pre-sales market because ninety-five percent of those sales don't occur on MLS, so the public doesn't necessarily have access to that, or realtors or developers to that information. Right. Uh, so I came here about five years ago at Fifth Avenue. Can Can you talk a little bit about that report? What's yeah. it called? So and- it's called Fifth Dimension. And so what it's about is, in a very readable way, we, we I give an overview and kind of talk a little bit on what I'm seeing in trends in the market. But with our partner, research partner, Urban Analytics, so they're an independent party that we pay that goes out, and they visit all of the new home sales centers for condos and townhomes all over Metro Vancouver. And they aggregate all that data and essentially can tell anybody exactly what sold last quarter, what prices did it sell for, what how does that compare to resales, um, you know, is it favorable still for development? And so it's it's got uh, probably twenty or thirty thousand people get that report now, right? And and we've had uh, Michael Ferreira on on the program actually in the past. He's a he's an insightful guy. He's an insightful guy. I trust him, you know, and and he's been a really good strategic partner to us over the years. So, so maybe just in speaking about uh, the current state of of new home construction and sales. Uh, you guys focus primarily on the Fraser Valley. What's the state of the market there currently? Well, just on that comment on the F- Fraser Valley, Fifth Avenue has been around since 1980. And so the original kind of leadership of it are still involved as investors. And and they had the foresight back then. They were working downtown and competing with the likes of Rennie and that. But they moved their family to Langley and saw the growth that was going to come in the suburban markets. 
So they've been working out here, and I've been working out here and living in here since... I've been living out here since 2009, or one, sorry, but they've been working out here since the early 80s. So they really had the foresight to see it, and, and we believe that you need to focus in our business. So Fifth Avenue specializes in only... We don't do resales, and we only work directly for developers and get involved right from when they buy the land right through to when the last uh, home is built and, and ownership transfers. And so with that, we only focus on the suburban markets with a concentration on the Fraser Valley. So as much as we main research, maintain research on the entire market, this is our focus. And this market has gone through a rapid acceleration in the last three years. And so, you know, it's always been a good busy market since, since uh, post-global recession, but the last three years it has really heated up. So maybe to that point, Scott, um, did you foresee the explosive growth of the Fraser Valley over the last three years? <laughs> I don't think I would have joined Fifth Avenue if I didn't. <laughs> I like to be busy. So yes, I did. Um, but I think it was because we were really reading it as a perfect storm that was going on. So we, you know, the city is going through, the, the metro, the, the Vancouver area itself is going through a number of factors. You've got, you know, population growth, including immigration. You've got, uh, in Vancouver, fewer and fewer development sites that are more costly. You have affordability becoming a bigger, bigger issue. And because the suburbs are not, I always joke about that old advertising campaign that you guys are probably too young to remember, but this is not my father's Oldsmobile, right? And and so the, the suburbs are not the suburbs that, that emerged in the 60s and 70s as bedroom communities with, you know, car-dependent so with transit and with the growth and the affordability issues, the placemaking that's gone on in places like Surrey City Centre and the architecture and pockets of Langley and in White Rock, etc., there's tremendous growth going on. And so those markets now behave more similarly to uh, a market like you'd find in, in more central areas like Vancouver's West Side or downtown. The other thing that's kind of contributed to that is that you know, in 2010 or so, like in 2008, the investors were active in the Valley and then they went away. Um, but the investors returned to the market in the last couple of years because its investors generally like to buy product and rent product that's, you know, in the condominium market, it's priced between three and $500,000. So a townhome rents out here for $2,500 if you buy a, a month, if you buy a $500,000 townhome as an investment. Well, $500,000 in downtown Vancouver barely buys you a studio right now. Right. So the aging population that's getting out of the busyness of Vancouver and moving close to where their children are raising their kids in suburban markets, you know, you've got immigration, you've got affordability challenges, and you also have the growth of these secondary, what we're secondary cities in terms of what they offer in terms of services and retail. And so people are feeling that they don't have to compromise lifestyle to live in, you know, in a more suburban market very true in the Tri-Cities as well. So the other thing we saw happening was, I remember talking about it in 2010 in a report, and in that report I said that downtown Vancouver real estate, which was just before the Olympics, the the average sort of price was about $600 a square foot. So you could still buy a lot of products for you know $300,000 for a one-bedroom or so. And I said that from my international experience and what was happening, I thought it would go to $1,000 a square foot within a couple of years. And I got laughed at. <laughs> now it's at 1600 right. So, So I think that, that, you know, that whole challenge of affordability definitely is, is fueling a migration of prospective real estate buyers and investors east. Uh, and then the other one is the aging population. The number of people that we see in our sales centers 
who are selling a house in Burnaby or in Quitlam or something like that to live in a little bit smaller community while they retire and a community that maybe reminds them more of what Vancouver was four or five years ago instead of the the new form. They still like cultural diversity, but they probably, you know, are, are feeling a little bit marginalized just as to what's happening in Vancouver. Do you have a specific area in the Fraser Valley that you're you're really excited about? Ah, it's a little bit like asking me which of my children is my favorite. <laughs> that, that's an next question. So there, 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 there's not one um, because there's so much going on dynamically. But if I so what I would say is if there's ones that I think I've been saying for years it's going to happen and it's going to happen, that's Surrey City Center. It's I've been saying for 20 years or so that I thought that that was going to be really transformed as a place, and now Guilford's in the same light. So those two markets are starting to, you know, the the price escalation has obviously increased as more people find it attractive, but, you know, with 10,000 new people moving into Surrey City Centre, it's not, you know, the old Surrey we used to snicker before. Um, There's some great architecture. Guilford has tremendous potential of developing around the mall. Uh, In addition to it, White Rock just has finally seen new product, and that's a great community for downsizers, retirees. Uh, and Ocean View, so I'm always very, very excited about White Rock. Uh, North Delta's got some really exciting things happening on Scott Road, uh, and as that community matures, from a town-owned perspective, there's tons of, of interesting places. I mean, Yorkson's growing, in Langley's growing like crazy. Maple Ridge has got some real potential in front of it. Abbotsford has taken off, and Abbotsford's historic downtown has some amazing brew pubs and restaurants, so we just completed a project there. And then I've got my eye on the future in the Fraser Valley that I really think that, you know, Port Moody has kind of become the West Vancouver of the Trans Cities. Coquitlam has become more like Burnaby in terms of pricing and values. Poor Coquitlam shot up. It's kind of, so what's really happening is Maple Ridge is becoming more like Port Coquitlam, which means mission is next, in my opinion. And that's probably going to take a couple of years, but I'm really seeing a number of the big developers starting to look, uh, including Polygon and the likes of taking land plays and, and buying and investing in land and mission, thinking that as more of the population starts to shift towards places like Surrey, there you know, there's some tremendous affordability in mission. You still would be able to buy a new town home in mission for four hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Whereas anywhere in the Fraser Valley now the starting price is five hundred for a brand new town home. Interesting. Interesting. Um, so would you say that is it it sounds like you're pinpointing there's a lot to unpack there, but people chasing affordability but also you know this push towards walkability and and livability it sounds like those are kind of the two factors that you see that's driving so much growth in the Fraser Valley yep yep then there's one other trend that I'll talk about in a second but in terms of walkability it's a huge deal and so most probably half the master plan community stuff that we're working on right now like the one in North Delta, the one in Abbotsford, et cetera, walkability is a huge feature to people. The ability to, I used to kind of joke about it, and I don't want to, you know, upset anybody or offend anybody, but especially with our older buyers, I find they generally like two things. And and one is they like to be able to walk to a doctor's office or medical. So look at Lonsdale in North Vancouver, for instance. Mm -hmm. And the other one is they like to be able to walk to a pub (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and a grocery store. So I think people want to get home and get out of their cars at night and wander around their neighborhoods but not necessarily have to get in the car to go pick up an item or have have a beer with a friend. And you know, if you watch the explosion of craft breweries out in the Fraser Valley, it's not you know it's it's not it's, you know the proliferation that is in downtown Vancouver. But there are some like in Fort Langley, some amazing little spots. The second trend is that I think with the younger buyer in particular, and this is interesting, 
I grew up in the prairies, and I grew up in a townhome because I just lived with my mom. So to me, a townhome was fine as a home. But the the and then I was at a conference speaking in America, and I think what I realized was the American dream is still very much about a single family house and a white picket fence, even though stratified property is growing. And in certain cities like New York and Chicago, if you want to live anywhere in our town, that's your only option. Mm-hmm. You're not even looking at single family. But I think the next generation of buyers really doesn't necessarily have that expectation that they have to own a single-family home. So we're seeing townhomes and, to a degree, condominiums become more mainstream as the ideal choice, not just the I can afford it till I can get a house choice. And that's a big shift. So, uh, you know, and, and we're definitely seeing that. So maybe in that same vein then, Scott, what would be your advice for millennials uh, considering you're trying to get into the market at this stage? Oh, it's a good question because, you know, two of my children, as much as I don't like that term, are that term. <laughs> um, I think that the one thing that I would do differently if I could go back in time it would be that I would get involved in the property market as soon as early as I could, even if I had to have three or four friends as roommates. Because there's, if you look at the people that have been able to generate wealth and also use that wealth for good in our market, generally real estate has done it. They haven't had to sell it at any point in time if the market was down, but they generally have invested in real estate. And so I think that for people, and if you look at countries like Singapore, they've really embraced this. And so Singapore has, I think, a home ownership rate in the 90%, and the government encourages people to own homes. So I think trying to, as much as I don't think you need to own a single-family home, I think building equity in, in a property is still a very smart decision, even if it means you, you know, you've got to have a couple of roommates or something to essentially help you know, make those mortgage payments the first while. So, Scott, along those lines, we're talking to a lot of people, uh, especially in the last three, four months. You know, there's been a lot of changes. The market seems to be um, softening right now. Would you be telling millennials to be buying right now, or would you be taking a wait-and-see approach? Like, what is your sense of the market? Well, you know, I don't think you can answer that. On, an in, on, a, on, a, on a general basis, because generally anytime anybody does something, they should think about what their objectives in doing it for are. So I think the market is shifting a little, but I think the market still, if you're selling condominiums or townhomes below $750,000, those aren't coming down in price. Construction costs have rapidly accelerated. Developers may not charge as much for the most expensive stuff in a particular townhome community or condominium community, but the, the most affordable stuff is going to definitely be more money than it was because of the cost of replacement or the cost of construction. So if you're looking at, at getting involved in a community alike, I do think that now is a good time to buy because I don't see the cost of construction coming down to allow developers to be able to sell new for less. Uh, on the single-family market and depending on neighborhood, you might want to be a little careful and wait and see. Uh, you know, and on an investment basis from pre-sale, we still have a major supply issue. And so if, if, if there's not a flood of supply, despite what a lot of the pundits think, that you can just kill it by demand, uh, if there's not supply, supply is, 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 is definitely creating a lot of the affordability issue. And I don't see that supply issue getting addressed rapidly in the next couple of years. The other thing I tell the millennials is, you know, we become a culture of instant gratification. And I think that I get that, but I think that sometimes our grandparents were so happy 
to be house rich and lifestyle poor a little bit, or and, and what I'd say a better way is they were quite content to do most of their socializing around their house and not go out because they could have to, to, to afford a home. But I think millennials are partly why they don't want single family home is they still want to have a vacation and stuff. Right. But the one advice I would do to people is, you know, definitely work hard to keep your levels of personal debt, especially credit card debt, low. So get in the property market as soon as you can and watch how you use your credit cards. Now I'm sounding like somebody's dad. <laughs> <laughs> It, it, just in one thing you said there, I mean, I, we talk to a lot of people who who talk about the lack of supply, and it seems like you know we work Vancouver proper, and and it seems like it's the something that's never gonna they're not ever gonna be able to get it right. But is there the potential for oversupply? Uh, you know, there's a lot of cranes going on right now in places like say Brentwood or, or other areas. You're saying that supply is still something that you know we're we're not building enough. Do you think there's a potential for oversupply in any any neighborhoods? Well, I'll approach it from a different way. Do you know that we're growing currently in Metro Vancouver, pretty much across Metro Vancouver, we're experiencing the lowest rental vacancy rate that we've ever had. Wow. Correct? Mm-hmm. So so that tells me two things. One is that we don't have enough rental stock, and you see the government trying to encourage people and CMHC and people like that to build rental stock. Right. Well, every year a percentage of people that have rented for a while consider buying. So I don't think we do have enough supply to, to, to keep up. I think where we might potentially be oversupplied at some point, but not now, is actual single-family homes. Because we're going through the most significant aging on the planet which means that people's needs and preferences for single-family homes is going to shift dramatically. So I think you're going to see less and less single-family stock and more multi-family stock, uh, and, and that will happen. But I don't believe that, you know, if there's a place where we're exposed to oversupply, it doesn't exist today, but at some point, if developers, you know, in a couple micro-markets, yeah, if they release too much product at once, we might see six or seven months of experience of, of supply and maybe a little bit of purchase incentives, and then it'll it'll quickly go away. One thing I will tell you right now, if you see a developer offering an incentive, jump on it because they won't last. Hmm, interesting. Do you guys think that's the case too or what's your view on that? It's it's interesting right now because we're like we're we're basically in a situation where we're we're we've been watching the detached market sitting fairly soft and and we definitely have seen the demographic changing and and uh, the two biggest buying contingents seem to be millennials and downsizers and they seem to want the same thing. <laughs> Neither of them want the single family. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Those are the two best end user ones that will still be active. If the investor decides that they want to take a little break in certain markets because they don't think there's capital appreciation or something, or they, you know, they want to sell what they have, those two end users. And the Fraser Valley, by the way, up until about a year and a half ago, was 90% end user buyers. Now it's a bit more balanced because people or investors are actually paying attention. Why investors are paying attention is because they think with the new mortgage rules that that the number of people that will be forced to rent even though they could service a mortgage because of they can't meet the qualification rules or come up with a deposit is going to drive more rental. There's yeah. also an emerging market that I see both for seniors affordable uh, relative to seniors and, and seniors luxury rental in that there's a bunch of people in their 70s who are essentially wanting to sell their home but do not want to have to listen to CTV news or global news and feel anxiety every night even though they don't need to sell their house. So I think you're going to see more and more, like you see in White Rock, there's a project, more and more seniors targeted rental for people 70 to 90 who want a new home but don't want to be dealing with mortgage payments or whirling about disposing of an asset 
or just feeling the anxiety of, you know, every news story that, you know, is the market up, is it down or whatever. So I think that you're going to see more of the older buyers, the aging buyers, look at rental as an option too. And we're not ready for that in terms of supply or in terms of, you know, appropriate layouts. Yeah, no, that's that's really interesting. What in, in this new climate with the new policies, what are some of the biggest challenges that are, are obviously developers are, are, are navigating these new rules and changes with everybody else? Uh, what's the biggest challenges the development community are facing right now? I think there's two. I think one is the amount of time that the developers spend trying to convince municipalities that density is not a bad thing and that we don't have a supply issue. Because it's amazing how many arguments there are that people don't think it's an issue. And I think the second, so that's one. The second one is the length of time it takes to get a a community approved. We're working in Langford right now on the island with a partner. That project was approved in less than like 90 days or six months. The mayor there is very pro-development and he doesn't want all kinds of red tape he wants to focus on the important things and make those things are right in the plan and then let everything else go. So if you can develop something, you know, and get approvals, but developers here are taking two or three years to get to market. So that's why there's little supply at times is because it's clogged in development approvals. And then in addition to that, additional development charges. So so I think that, you know, and then you top onto it the fact that there's the last point I'd make is what I would call the compound effect of time value of money. I have to own this land longer before I can turn it into homes. I have to spend more on architects and consultants taking time to get it through the development process. Then in addition to it, my construction costs have gone up rapidly. I'm having trouble finding labor. Like costs in the the Fraser Valley on some of the projects we're working on for a base kind of apartment building are up $50 a buildable square foot to $70 a square foot. So they know the consumer can't bear all that at some point. Then you've got all these development charges they're adding in, plus new forms of taxation. And, you know, you know, there's an article about Vancouver that says $250,000 of a new condominium goes to taxes that was put out. I think Michael yeah. Ferrari put it on LinkedIn. So I think that's one of the things is that they're in an environment with escalating costs, limits to how much at some point they can charge for things. And then they're taking longer and longer. So the longer that a developer has to take to develop something, obviously the more risk they're exposed to, and then their finance costs go up. So I think developers are really struggling with trying to meet the affordability challenge by not being able to get to market in time and having escalating costs. Do you think there's a breaking point? Like It strikes me like a lot of the new policy shifts this year, even stuff like, say, the school tax, where they say, or not, sorry, not the school tax, but property transfer tax, where it's going to create X amount based on, you know, this idea that the market just will continue to go up forever, or that it's not going to have any negative impact on the market. Like, do you think all of these factors that you're talking about, like, it, it almost, everyone thinks that, you know, there's... Uh, money to be made, an impossible amount of money to be made in the development community, you seem to be suggesting it's actually pretty tough out there right now. And there's a you lot know, of no risk. matter what happens, and, when, and I've seen development pro formas and worked for developers for 30 years, and generally, no matter how much risk they rick, they almost always make the same amount of money or less, even though prices go up. Because if prices go up, it's because costs went up. Because a lot of developers know. So there's two things. One is my little soapbox about the school tax. Like, you know, 
that shouldn't be named a school tax. It's going to general revenues. Mm-hmm. So just call it what it is. Like it, I do get annoyed a little bit when we're not we're not transparent or clear what we're really doing there. Right? That's a that's a general revenue tax grab. But I think what to your to answer your question, pricing thresholds are really based on financing thresholds. If you talk about end users, there are only so many people that can afford a home for for a million dollars. There's only so many for seven fifty. There's only so many for five hundred, and only so many for three hundred. And obviously, there's more for three hundred and seven fifty. So with this, all these development costs going up, and then new costs, higher costs of borrowing for consumers, developers ultimately, if they hit they, as much as they can, maybe you can see prices increasing to a degree. They still have to build product that fits those thresholds. So that means that probably we're going to see more and more innovative and smaller forms of product again so that they can hit a price point. But at some point, you know, they just you, you can't there, – there, there are some simple economic principles, and I'm not an economist, but I've definitely studied a lot and have a business degree, is that I still believe the principles of supply and demand apply. But the mm-hmm. other one is there is still something called pricing elasticity and inelasticity. And on smaller product, it's actually more elastic. Today, we could charge $400,000 for the same home we charge 300 and still sell lots of them. But when you get above 750, it starts to get more inelastic because A, consumers can't afford it, and B, some don't want to, don't want to. So I think that, that, yeah, at some point, if, if we, if we find that, you know, you know, there, there, there is always a ceiling to that. And the only other ceiling to it is, unless more wealth is, is generated in certain markets, then those thresholds don't move up. So in other words, either parents have to be giving more money, which has partly allowed some of the price appreciation and still allowed for sales to occur. But in other cases, unless people are getting wealthier, like New York and that, like when you look at markets like Manhattan and Hong Kong, and I've worked in both, uh, downtown Vancouver is becoming very similar to that. And it just becomes like in downtown in Manhattan, most people don't even think about ownership. It's all about how much lease can I afford? Mm-hmm. So we could be heading there in certain markets in Vancouver where ownership isn't even on the table. It's just about, you know, how great of an apartment can I lease? And by the way, those rents in some of those cities would cover easily, you know, ample of a mortgage here in Vancouver. So, yeah, there's thresholds. Uh, and unless wealth increases in the area, uh, you know, those, at some point we'll bump into those thresholds. The problem is if we bump into those thresholds and developers stop developing, the supply issue is exacerbated, which means rents are either going to be super higher or anybody who does develop is going to have more potential buyers than they want. So we're not going to necessarily see an ease in affordability again. Right. Like the bar- the if, if you take the idea that supply is the fundamental problem here, it seems like the barriers to building all the ones that you've outlined here, um, you know, it's just it's the problem's just going to get worse. Well, and I might add two things. I say, I, I, I don't, I'm not an extremist. I do think that there are certain issues with demand, but I think that, that supply is not addressed. And the government's, all its actions that I've seen and interpreted are all demand focused as opposed to balanced and looking at supply, other than the fact that they want to be in the housing business now and build a bunch of rental stock. And I'm not a big fan of necessarily larger government doing that as opposed to really forming good partnerships. And there are some initiatives to do good partnerships. So I want to be careful what I say there too, but I do think you have to address both. The, there, is, there is a challenge in some areas of inflation, but again, that inflation is again driven by a lack of supply, right? If you, you know, anytime there's more of something, generally prices hold or decrease. And anytime something is, becomes more scarce, 
then it tends to be pricier. So I think it's a balanced view. I don't have an issue, for instance, with, you know, uh, enforcing, you know, taxation on assignments and making sure that, you know, and looking at capital gains tax and those things. I think those, I think the capital gains tax is better than the speculation tax because there are some people starting to get a little press in the media now who, you know, are feeling that they're being punished because they've lived in Point Grey for 30 years. They're house rich, but their cash flow is, is sensitive because they're aging. And now they're saying, well, I have to pay this tax every year. And yeah, you can defer it. So what? It's still a big amount of money. And they'd rather just pay that tax at the time that the asset actually changes hands. So I think capital gains tax as a way of sort of, you know, moderating investment demand is not a bad thing. But I think just, and I, and I wonder, I mean, there's those like Bill Good who predict, and I think they might be right, that the speculation tax at $3 million doesn't make most people feel sorry for somebody because they all think it's a rich person from China that owns these homes, which is not the case. Uh, but I think the bigger issue is what happens when the government brings that down to a million and a half or a million dollar house. And that's the rumblings that people like Bill Good are starting to raise the flag saying, this is just the beginning potentially of increased taxation on property. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we had Andre Pavlov, uh, uh, econo- economist at, from SFU, who brought up the same point for sure. And if they bring it down to a million, then they'll have a revolt on their hands. Because right now, really, you can't buy anything. Like, I'm joking, I'm preparing a presentation tomorrow for UDI, and every year I used to, Bob Rennie used to do it, I loved he did it, so I sort of borrowed it and started to pick the theme song. This year I didn't really do one, but, you know, the last couple of years, one, four, three or four years ago when I did my speech, it was, the future's so bright, you better wear shades in the valley, then it was hot in here. Last year it was strange things were happening because there was a lot of stuff going on. <laughs> this year the song would probably be crazy, or if we were talking about how the industry and government interact, Dave Mason's song, we just disagree. <laughs> but but I think that, that right now it's, you know, it, it's becoming... Uh, you know, it's definitely very, very challenging in, in, in watching how things are shifting. And, you know, w- one of the songs somebody joked is, if I had a million dollars, well, if I had a million dollars, today I wouldn't be rich. <laughs> I just might have a house. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas, when we, you know, years ago, you won a million dollars in a lottery, you quit your job the next day. Now, if you won a million dollars in a lottery, quit your job, you're you're an idiot. So. Um, so Scott, so what does the rest of 2018 look like uh, for the market, and and any predictions for next year, 2019? I think that uh, this year has been a pretty good start for new home sales, and again, that's not necessarily widely reported, but probably will in August. It's been a very strong first half year for uh, for multifamily. So I think the multifamily sector will be active in the fall, but I think how it will be is that it will be there will be areas that if you looked at it like a heat map or something, there will be certain areas that will be red hot, especially wherever there's product, new product available between $300,000 and seven hundred and fifty. And then everywhere else there'll be some areas that are a little bit yellow and a little bit slower in the fall than they maybe they were red hot in March. And then in October and stuff, they might be yellow. And there'll be, there'll be the odd area, especially above a million and a half dollars, where it might be a little bit blue for a month or two and kind of cool. And then I think, however, I think heading into 2019, we saw this, by the way, in 2016. We set a record for the number of homes sold in 2016, but most of them occurred before September, and then the foreign buyer's tax came in in August. And we saw a quieter fall, and then all of a sudden, January 15 to 2000. 
uh, 17 away a win again. So I think I'm, I'm kind of seeing that pattern a little bit, but I, with one exception, there will be hot spots, especially around where that product is offered that I talked about in terms of the price threshold. Interesting. So so we've been talking about that as well, uh, because some people are predicting kind of a, a longer term slowdown here. But we've mentioned that on the podcast, like that it was like the punch in the face from the foreign buyers tax. And then kind of four months later, business as usual, you're kind of seeing uh, kind of a similar trend here with the one caveat that it sounds like affordability, kind of the local market is going to is going to be driving uh, prices and, and transactions. Yeah, I do. And I do think that, that that I do think that there's some out there that are kind of taking a wait and see attitude to see what happens even with government, you know, do they, yeah, it'd be interesting to do a poll on how many people think that if we're sitting here a year from this October, um, whether or not they think we'll still have the same government and, you know, because it can't change quickly because, you know, there's that by-election coming up, but even then they have six months after if they lost that to sort of decide what they're going to do. So I, I think there's a number of people that are kind of looking at this and going, it's funny because when the when the NDP got elected, a lot of young people I think got on board. But I, I sort of, you know, joked with a few of my friends that this generation may be getting on board, but they're not as patient as the last, as the last one. They're not going to wait eight years to see what happens. They're going to make their decision in two years whether they buy in or not. Right. So, just out of curiosity, Scott, if 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 we gave you a million dollars to invest in Metro Vancouver real estate, what would you buy and where? That's a great question. Uh, and again, it sort of is caveated by personal objectives for each person because they might do different things. But I would probably, I would probably go if I was doing it as a straight investor. I would go to where I could buy one or two or three homes at three hundred thousand or four hundred thousand than I would, you know, put all my money in one basket. I would go and look at places like Surrey City Centre or Guilford or. Abbotsford or, you know, Langley's town center area that's starting starting to morph or Delta. And I try what I try to do is I'd either buy a townhome for a half million dollars and, a, and an apartment and maybe and I wouldn't spend the full million or I'd buy I'd buy two apartments in two different neighborhoods. But I would definitely if I had a million dollars, I would definitely spend it, uh, you know, you know, but I'd look to buy more than one as opposed to buying, you know, putting it all in one. In, I wouldn't put it in, me personally, I wouldn't put it in single family right now at a million dollars just because that's not something that I'm interested in or needing to do. But it sounds like you'd put all your eggs in the real estate basket, just not in, in one property basket. Uh, yeah, especially if you can, you know, if you, like anything with Vancouver, is I remember talking to a buddy of mine, and he was a young guy, and he was going to buy a home, and he said, well, you know, I'm worried, like, what if the prices shift? And I said to him, okay, well, so here's the question. Do you really like where you're going to buy? He said, yeah, I do. So this is going to be a great place to live. I said, okay, and how long do you think you live there? Well, we'll have a second child, not to be out of there in five years. I said, and so if the market shifted in five years, could you stay there another five years and be happy? Long pause, and he goes, Yeah. So I said, so basically what you're selling, as long as you don't have to sell anything when you need to, right, uh, if you can hold on to it, you think you'll be okay. He said, that's, he goes, yeah, I agree. So I said, so what's holding you up from buying? And he went and bought. So, you know, and I don't think everybody should buy. That's not the point. In his case, we asked the right questions and he came to the own conclusion that, you know what, I'm going to get in the market. I'm going to get this home. And if I have to stay in it longer before I can get a larger home, so be it. Right. 
So I, I think that's, I think, but I, I'm encouraging people to think through, but I do think that, yeah, there's still lots of opportunity for people to get involved, and I still expect, you know, homes to be sold. But, you know, it's a bit different when you get above $3 million, and, and you guys would know that as well as I do. Absolutely. Scott, we've got this uh, this quick segment called the Five Wire, Five Questions About Vancouver. Can you qu- stick around for that? You bet. Excellent. So what is your favorite neighborhood in Metro Vancouver? <laughs> That's really like, again, picking your kid. <laughs> uh, so I'll give you a couple different examples. Uh, it's pretty hard not to like Southeast Falls Creek and Chinatown, and I put them together. Because there's an interesting mix of new and old and culture, and you can walk to a bunch of stuff, and you can bike to a bunch of stuff. So it's it it it, it may not be the you know the you know fitting the price thresholds, but it's pretty hard not to like that. I also love any community where you can walk a short distance and be near water. So you know, I'm, uh, White Rock always has a place in my heart. Uh, the other ones is I like where you can walk to retail. So you know. You know, things that are happening out in places like Langley or Fort Langley. There's almost the one thing with me is that I, probably anything we don't take a listing on if we all don't feel like we'd want to own it there, and then we get to shape what the product is. So I kind of fall in love with each of our communities and projects like they were my children. So there's so many good places to live, but depending on lifestyle. Uh, if I was a little bit now, here's the trend that I think will happen over the next five to ten years. Vancouver is going to continue to get very, very busy. Traffic isn't necessarily going to solve itself. I think we're going to see more and more of an exodus of 55, 65 plus people to other markets. So when I lived in Toronto, they used to say years ago that the ninth favorite thing about living in Toronto was Florida. (laughs) (laughs) So in my case, probably the fourth or fifth favorite thing about Metro Vancouver is being three and a half hours from Kelowna. Good answer. So, yeah, I think think that, you know, so the... There's lots of places in BC, but, uh, you know, I guess the other way to turn around the question is I can't find a neighborhood really that I can't, you know, we're really blessed with a lot of great neighborhoods. Like, can you think of one you'd absolutely not want to live in? Yeah, there's a few that have to emerge and be, that are, that are a little bit, you know, they're dealing with, you know, homelessness or safety issues, but there's not many and they're changing. What's amazing, we ask uh, most of our guests this question and it's amazing how, how diverse the responses are. Like it's not the same neighborhood every time. That's for sure. Exactly. Next question for you, Scott, favorite bar or restaurant? <laughs> You've got some good questions there. <laughs> ah, you must, you must know something about me because whenever I go to a new neighborhood and we get involved in a community, I spend a lot of time in coffee shops and bars, listening and talking to people. And, you know, I write a lot of our business plans and proposals and research reports. I hate to say it in pubs. So one of my newest favorites is actually a brew pub in Deep Cove. And they make craft brewery and they have exceptional food. So it's my new favorite because I just went there the other day. It's not as close to home, but I really like it. Um, you know, closer to home, one of the things I'll tell you about the, the, the number of the areas, there's a place called the Tap House in Langley that's a little brew pub. And they have a restaurant in Fort Langley and a brew pub in Langley. And that restaurant, Fort Langley's got a lot of charm. You know, it's a great day trip for people to go out. It's a great place for a date. But they've got about 10 fabulous restaurants. But that Tap House uh, restaurant and, and brew pub there in Fort, in Fort Langley is phenomenal. And the beer's fantastic. And do you remember the name of the one in Deep Cove? The one in Deep Cove is actually called Deep Cove Brew Pub. I think it's right on uh, Dollarton Highway there. 
in a little industrial area. It's kind of funky, and you can sit inside or outside. They have live music, but the beer was really good. Great. Matt and I do most of our work in pubs as well. Um. Uh, but we're, you know, the one thing I would say about things like, uh, you know, say Surrey City Centre at Guildford is that they're highly, highly um, desirable, finally, for commercial. So you're going to see a lot, a rapid growth of food and beverage opportunities because they got 10,000 people moving in these areas and they don't have enough restaurants or bars. And what I'm really into is the entrepreneurial nature. Most of the places I talk about, it's funny, maybe some of your other guys do, I wouldn't list a chain as one of my favorites. I like the owner-operator kind of make it right there, you know, meet the guys kind of places. There's one in uh, Abbotsford, for instance, called Field. Ah, I've got their free beer coupon on my desk, Field House Brewing. And it, you know, you go out in the old historic downtown Abbotsford, and it feels like Gastown a little bit, and then they got this craft brewery out there and it again it's just amazing and it's actually really reasonable in terms of pricing too wow some great recommendations how about uh downtown penthouse or west side mansion i'm downtown penthouse all the way i'm not i don't i don't want to deal with a mansion i don't want to deal with high-end people to cut my lawn everything like that i'm <laughs> i'm downtown penthouse yeah first place you take someone from out of town oh that's a good question you usually have to do the whole Southeast Falls Creek and Stanley Park thing uh, if they're really from out of town and don't know the area because it's just it's stunning. And then the other, you know, or you know, and so those are those are the first couple. Uh, the other one I take them if they're friends of ours is you know White Rock Beach, and if it's especially if it's you know, we'll go down there for at least one meal or and walk around even in the wintertime walk around along the seawall and that. But so it's usually water driven. Uh, you know, and then you're going to do, you know, the Whistler's fantastic or Squamish for that for a day trip. Uh, Fort Langley's also got that charm. It's got old antiques and stuff. So if we've got people out of town for more days, you just pretty much nailed three days of our itinerary. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So Scott, do you have a last question? Uh, Do you have a recent purchase under $500? So it could be a a gadget, a book, uh, an album, anything um, that you've been really happy with that you can recommend? It changed okay, their life. I'm totally get myself in trouble here. <laughs> and everybody's going to laugh at me. But I used to chew tobacco, and I haven't chewed for years. <laughs> but every now and then, I don't mind a little bit of dessert-flavored nicotine. So I have a $36 hidden little vape that looks like a pen. <laughs> <laughs> and this thing works so my kids bought it for me because they're like, Dad, we, you're borrowing ours once in a while. Get your own. So, <laughs> ironically, I'm really happy with this thing because it works really well and no way it's pretty discreet. So, I shouldn't even say that, but ah, be real. That's what it is. That's <laughs> one of my little vices. So, best Excellent. 35 or 40 bucks I ever spent. <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right. Well, thanks so much, Scott, for your time. That was a fantastic conversation and, uh, yeah, we really appreciate it. And, and thanks, Scott. guys. Keep, keep going and on. What you're doing is great. Just keep the conversation going. I think it's so important to make sure people get as many different diverse perspectives as they can. So thanks for the time. It was my pleasure. Oh, we appreciate and it. Good, great questions, by the way. I love questions. You guys ask great questions. <laughs> well, thanks, Scott. And, and last but not least, can you, can you let us know how we can find out more about Fifth Avenue Real Estate Marketing? Yep. If you go to fifthavenue.ca, we have all of our coming soons and a little bit of background on us and which projects are actively selling. But more importantly, the consumer actually can access that research report for free I talked about. So if they're looking for a home, there's data there that normally only people in the industry get 
it's we give it to realtors, the consumers. They can go on to the Fifth Avenue website and they can pull that re- report down for themselves and they can sign up and get it every quarter. It's very easy to read in terms of the tables and stuff, so you don't have to be an industry guru or anything to figure it out. It's written that way to be clear and concise. But yeah, they can go to Fifth Avenue and download that, and you know we're always happy to help them. Our our you know our teams are working for the clients at each site dedicated to that site, so they're there to help. And uh, and if at Fifth Avenue dot ca backslash sign up is where they can get that report. Excellent. We'll we'll add a sh- uh, we'll add a link in the show notes as well. Okay, and then I'll uh, yeah. So we'll look forward to it. And uh, thanks. It was a good warm up for my talk tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good, good luck with that. Good luck. Okay, take care, guys. Thanks, Scott. Thanks. So there you have it, folks, our discussion with Scott Brown, president and CEO of Fifth Avenue Real Estate Marketing. It's going to be hard not to invest in Mission right now, Matt. Not only because they sell amazing hockey sticks. Is that is that, is that the same mission? I don't know. I don't know. I, my money's going on mission or it's going in Sherwood, BC, but I, I can't decide which. Uh, I was thinking Louisville. Louisville. Louisville's not in BC. Anyways, there's a... There's a it's Louisville. Come on. There's a, is it Louisville? No, it's Louisville. Is it Louisville? Yeah. Wait, but they make baseball equipment, but they also make uh, hockey sticks. Yeah, or they used to make hockey sticks. I don't is know Sher- BC Sherwood, here's a question for you. BC Sherwood, do they still make hockey sticks? I, I You know what? I didn't know that Sherwood was from BC, but potentially. Um, oh, yeah. Is- no, remember the BC curve? It could actually, BC might have just stood for big curve. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, that's 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 actually. I always thought it was actually from BC growing up in Canada. But I'm I'm. If we could just get somebody on tech to to search that, that would be great. But uh, we don't have anyone. We'll we'll have. No, put it in the show notes. Put it in the show notes. Hi, podcast listeners. Just a note from the Vancouver Real Estate Podcast Studio. Uh, Sherwood hockey sticks are actually made in Brampton, Ontario, and BC does not refer to Big Curve. Okay, back to Matt and Adam. Anyways, that was a phenomenal interview, and uh, I that was great. I can't believe BC Sherwood. That's hilarious. That, would that have stood for big curve? Because they, they were the, remember, and, and it was illegal to play with the curve that you could slide a puck under the curve yeah. when it was lying flat. And it was weird that it was the province of BC. Yeah. No, I, I've, we'll, we'll, we'll get to the bottom of this outside. Anyways, <laughs> this is probably not the venue for uh, this conversation, and we'll, we'll pick up where we left off when we're off the mics here. But what else we got? What else do we got? We got VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. We do. Go check out VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com and sign up for some of the best resources out there. Yeah. I mean, we got the research tools. Yeah, like private client services. What, what do you get with private client services? Matt, if you are not using PCS, you are standing still while the rest of us power walk by. You get sold prices. You get days on market. You get listing updates 36 to 72 hours before public MLS. This is the best way to search for real estate. It absolutely is. We've tried all the different tools out there and sign up for free today. That's right. We also have our mobile app, basically all the information you get on PCS, but you get it on the go. Yeah. You're walking down the street. You see a building that you like. You take your phone out of your pocket. You use the app, of course, point your phone at the building. There's two listings. Call your realtor. Um, what else we got uh last but not least we got the live wire that's also over the vancouver real estate podcast this is our weekly email list we got deal of the month we got tips 
We got new episodes, information you're not going to get anywhere else. And polls, lots of polls. Lots of polls. We're doing a lot of polls these days. We want to know what you think. We want to know. And and if you have ideas for episodes, please do get in touch. We've had a lot of people write in with different ideas for episodes. Well, we got one coming up next week. Absolutely. We got the one. The Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments of Buying in a Buyer's Market. That's right. That's yeah. right. So that's next week. That was actually a request. That was a request. And uh, they didn't you, ask for the commandments, but they asked for a couple of uh, tips. If you ask, we will podcast. That's and, right. And uh, what else we got, Matt? We got reviews. We were at 163 reviews on iTunes. We appreciate every review. If you want to help us grow the podcast, the easiest way you can do that is either get in touch or write a review on iTunes or Google. That's right. And you can get in touch with me at 778-847-2854 or Matt at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. And you, Adam? Or you can try me at 778-866-4574 or Adam at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. We also have that nonpartisan line, info at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. So really hope you enjoyed the interview with Scott today. Come back next week. We've got a fantastic episode for you and we'll see you next Wednesday. We're getting back on the tools. This is We're, exciting. Matt, you've never been on tools in your life <laughs> and nobody believes that. Nobody believes that. You, you're, you're the guy that holds a hammer upside down. Have a good week, guys. Take care. Hey everyone, pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible. We want to take a minute to tell you about Holy House, a nonprofit organization that provides community building programs and tenant support services to low-income seniors, veterans, families, and vulnerable residents in the downtown east side and across the lower mainland. Melissa from our team has been volunteering at Holy House. Melissa, what's been your experience? Honestly, it's been so fulfilling just to spend a few hours a week in the community and watch how the staff really transforms these vulnerable communities from the inside out, starting with just small things, right? Playing games, drinking coffee, having some simple conversations that you wouldn't necessarily think are super fulfilling. And you come out just feeling like you've really made an impact and connected with the community. And you've been to multiple buildings, but you're playing games, drinking coffee. Yeah, you know, serving food sometimes. And you made some friends along the and way. I've made some friends along the way. It's really helped me be more present, actually, in those moments of just, you know, realizing how simple life can be to make an impact, right? Fantastic. And if you want to learn more, you can definitely check out Jenny Conkin, co-founder of Holy House, who is a past guest fan favorite on the show, or head over to holyhouse.ca where you can donate or volunteer, and they're looking for both donations, and they definitely like volunteers. That's holyhouse.ca. Vancouver needs your help. Be part of the solution. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, 
new resources, head over to oakwind.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakwind.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakwind, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakwind.com slash join, typing in VRP 2020.